गुरु ब्रह्मा गुरु विष्णु गुरुदेव महेश्वर गुरुदेव पराब्रह्म तस्म श्री गुरुदेव नम ओं स्थापकाय धर्म सेवधर्मस्वूपिने अवतारवरिष्ठाकृष्णाथे नम ओं तवगतमृत सप्तजीवन कविबीरजीत कर्मशापम श्रवणमंगल श्रीमदात हुवि गृनंदी ये भुरीदाजना ओ लॉर्ड Your nectar-like words stop the burning misery of afflicted souls. Your words, your words which the poets have sung in verse, vanquish the sins of the worldly forever. Blessed are they who hear of your vast glory. Blessed indeed are they who speak of you, and how unparalleled is their bounty. Hello, everyone. Welcome. So Guruji is now in India. and so we are continuing our talk on the shri shri ramakrishna kathamrita and so we're going through chapter by chapter section by section so uh so right now we are <coughs> for some time actually we've been on the the boat ride with keshab sen and uh vijay goswami so um so you know the setting is uh keshab had asked from Krishna to come on the steam steamship to go down towards Calcutta along the Ganga so he came and then when he went to Sri Ramakrishna's room Vijay Vijay Krishna Goswami was there and so there's some political things where um uh, Vijay Krishna Goswami had been a disciple of Keshab Sen with the Brahmo Samaj and had just some disagreements and so he had splintered and formed his own group another Samaj And so here this was the setting they all get into the boat and there they are in the in this little cabin on the steam on the steamship with Shrama Krishna in the middle and Keshab on this side Vijay Krishna on go down this side and very the tension is palpable mm-hmm. and you have the disciples of both kind of huddled around sitting on the floor and people popping peeking through the doors and through the portholes and and looking and eating their muri and so that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of the setting a little bit of tension and so sri ramakrishna in the past fast last week and before that we were talking how he was talking about how like in 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 the divine leelas like krishna without them uh what is it uh jatila uh in uh with the other jatila in uh uh in kutila um the the uh uh without characters like that in that leela um then krishna leela wouldn't have the same the same he trump krishna even says the same nourishment not even the same sweetness so that tension that that uh that that as spice to the leela but but also nourishment to the leela so he was talking along those lines and then um saying how there are disagreements with gurus and disciples so uh and then last week talking about how difficult it is to be a guru he even turned to keshab and said you don't look at people's nature before you make them your disciples and that's why they break away like this you know meaning <laughs> vijay krishna goes on to talk about like making the tension more <laughs> that's why he breaks away those people you don't look you know and how difficult it is to be a guru and how many people so many people want to be a guru but who wants to be a disciple so we're talking along those lines 
And so, as we've said in the past, almost every time, because there's new people every time, that the way Mahendranath Gupta has arranged this, um, these are from his diary entries. But um, here we've been going through, and there's this, this particular book within this volume. This is the second book of volume one. And this is just the boat ride, and there's ten chapters in this, but it only covers just the boat ride. So in the middle of the conversation, Sri Ramakrishna is talking, and then the chapter ends, and a new one begins. Because for M, it wasn't so much, this is a historical document, you know, uh, describing something that happened. For him, it was a meditation. And so the way he's divided it, and then the chapters are divided into sections, and for him, this was a meditation. And they're meant to be morsels to meditate on, not so much, you know, to look at it in a linear way as a historical document. These were divine meditations on a, for him, which was a holy lila. So we're continuing the boat ride. And now we are in chapter 8, the last section, the last two sections actually, of chapter 8. So Sri Ramakrishna is continuing his, his talk. And he says, oh, and he had just finished saying, He says, the people who don't have the... You, to be a guru, you need the command. Or you need a command. And he used the example of, uh, of Narada and Sri Shankara, Adi Shankaracharya. You know, they had the command from God. Then you can go and instruct people and teach people. If not, it seems empty lectures, no one will listen. He says, no one... Uh, at the end, he says, Shekotar unushare kaj korbena. Which means they... No one will act in accordance with those words. If you're, if you're just, if you think you've got the, even say, he even says, even thinking you have the command doesn't mean you have the command. So, um, just simply giving lectures, that's people won't follow what you're saying there. They won't. In a few days, they'll forget. So that's just what he finished saying. And so again, Takur didn't. There was no pause. There was no, you know, they then they went outside. No, it's just the next very moment. But M has a new section, right here. <laughs> because again, even within the same, sometimes the same sentence, he has, he has this is, okay, this is a new, a new idea. So, Sri Ramakrishna is talking, and he's continuing this section, talking of the past, what was seen with the eyes at Haldar Pukur. So Sri Ramakrishna says, in that country, Kamar Pukur, the village where he was born and grew up, there is a pond called Haldar Pukur. Pukur means pond or tank. So in that country, there's a pond called Haldar Pukur. And every day in the morning, people would keep defecating on its banks. Others who come in the morning, they give a heavy scolding. And the next day, it's the same way again. The defecating still doesn't stop. Everyone laughs. So it's interesting because in this same... In, some chapters back, in the same boat ride, Thakur used one of his famous examples about talking about the different uh, paths of religion and the different religions, the different paths within the religions and the different religions themselves, and he used a beautiful example of, a, again, a pukur, a pond, and ghats, the steps leading down. And he gave the example, so this must... Like, if you think about it, even though it was like for us, it was like I think a year and a half ago or a year ago, 
in real time on the boat ride. This was just a few minutes ago. Sri Ramakrishna was saying how, you know, there's a pond and then there's ghats leading down to it. And one on one pond, a Hindu goes down. He takes the water in his hand. He picks it up in the palm of his hand and he calls it jal, which means water. Across the way, on the other side of the pond, a Muslim goes down the steps, puts the water in his hand, and he calls it pani, which is the Urdu word for water. And then on, another, on the other side of the pond, an Englishman goes down the steps, he puts the water, cups it in his hand, he looks at it, and he calls water. And Sri Ramakrishna said, the water is the same. They just call it different things. Jal, pani, water, it's all the same. But so God is like that. You know, God, God is the same being, the same substance, the same thing, but people just call it differently, relate to it, him, her, it, differently. So it's interesting, and then last week we talked, um, uh, he used a, um, uh, another, uh, another water analogy, um, where he says, um, what was it, the, uh, well, we'll get back to that, but the um, here the idea in that pukur the ghat that they're all picking up the water and calling it something different using that idea that you, we talked about this last week that that um, this idea of using as a metaphor water use oh that was that's what it was last year we or last week uh, he used uh, that just even a few minutes earlier, another, he talks about how the Calcuttans, they're into fads, and they go to dig a well in one place, and they hit a rock, and they stop digging. So they go to another place, they come across some sand, and eh, it gets too difficult, so they go to another place, and they keep digging in different places. They never go deep enough to get any water. So, um, so, so the Calcuttans, he's, oh, Calcuttans, you know, they're into their fads. And so this image, again, of water you go to to dig for water, and again, God, water, you're searching for that, you're searching, and again, just that idea, we talked about this last week too, that, that idea of water, water is essential to us, the fact that we're alive means that we're drinking water, if we didn't, we'd die, water is our essence, water, without water, we won't last more than a few days, so this repeated imagery of using water to signify God or that truth, Ma, whatever you want to call it, the ultimate, it's meaning that it's not, God isn't this, the ultimate truth isn't some object somewhere out there to believe or not believe or call it this or call it that. You know, every one of the Englishmen, the Muslim and the Hindu who are picking up the water, presumably they're going to drink it or wash with it or use it for puja. You know, it's, it's in, water is, it's, it's part of our essence. And so the idea, again, using that water, why are they even picking the water? Why are they digging a the well from water? Because they're thirsty. That's the point. It's, that's God. And so here again, if so if we keep this idea, then, now he's talking about something that really happened. He actually saw this. This was, it wasn't some, some story, a metaphor. But again, for him, this is, this incident made him think about uh, the religious and spiritual uh, uh, ramifications of it. So, it. so here's this pond, and the people are defecating on its banks. So we can see that, you know, 
Some people are digging for water and they don't find it. Some people find the water and get the water and they say, no, well, only this is water. You don't have water over there. This, this is really water. And then there's simply people in the name of religion who are defecating on the banks. So that's a very, if you look, if you, if you keep this, the, the through line of that metaphor, you can see that there's a lot into this. It's not just a, it, in one sense, it's a humorous anecdote from when he was a child. And he saw that eh, people were defecating on the bank. But symbolically, it's like, we can see all the time in the name of religion, on the very banks of religion and dharma, people are defecating. And some people say, oh, I'm going here to bathe, to purify myself. That's what I'm here for. That's what religion is, to purify oneself. And you're just defecating. You know, and no one listens. So here we are back by the pond, Haldarpagur. So the next day it's the same way again. The defecating still doesn't stop. Everyone in the cabin laughs. Then people let the company know. They sent an officer. When that officer put up a sign saying, do not defecate, then it all stops. Everyone laughs. So for those who don't, whenever Taco or anyone here refers to the company, they mean the East India Company. Because as we know at this time, India was ruled by the East India Company. Not even the British, it was a company. It would be, I mean, an amazing thing that a, um, a corporation had, it was the only, uh, I, I believe, it was the only corporation in history who had the authority to make treaties, declare war, have standing army, and break treaties, and, you know, basically they were like a little mini-government, but still, they were the company. So then in 1857, after a very horrible time, with much bloodshed, then the company realized, oh, we can't really handle this. And so officially, officially, then India became the, uh, part of the British Empire. And then Queen Victoria became Empress of India in 1858. So, so anyway, so the company, back in, you know, they probably talked to someone, and someone went to the, the, you know, the whole corporate thing. They go to sends some guy from Calcutta to come to Kamarpakur, and then he goes there and he puts up a sign. So he puts up a sign, do not defecate. And then everything stopped. You had people who were like, please don't do this. But no one would listen. But if the company puts up a sign, and that's another thing, it's not even a person. It's just a sign. I mean, the person left, and then they can do whatever they want. Still, no one did anything. Because the sign is there. What's the, the significance of this? It's just a, a sign. There's, there's nobody with a stick saying, don't do that. It's just a sign. And so we talk about, you know, how like there's um, sannyas, you know, lingam, you know, means it has a whole range of meanings. And one of them is simply the lingam in Sanskrit, it means sign, means mark, the sign of Shiva. So this, the, the Garewa cloth, and the, the Jatta, and the Rudraksha, the Kamandalu, Danda, these are the sannyas lingam, the sign of the sannyasin. So that idea that we have these signs, and these signs represent, you know, sannyas is not the Garawa cloth, it's not the Kamandalu, it's not the Jatta. But these are the signs of that. So people see 
the sannyasin, and they see the robes, they see the danda, they see, and they, oh, he's a sannyasin. And so they become the signs, they signify all the principles that the sannyasin hopefully is supposed to embody. So it's the same thing here. It's like, the person isn't there, but the sign, the sign has the authority. So in a certain sense, people see that and it represents that. It doesn't, it's not contained that. The authority of the sign is just a wood and paint, presumably. But seeing the sign, you think of the authority and you have the respect. They had, they had the respect for the company. So there's a kind of a mixture of fear and respect, a recognition, if you will, a simple recognition of that authority. This is again, we'll come back, and as he's been talking, we talked about last week, and we'll talk about again, this recurring idea of what, where does authority lie? An idea again, as he said before, you need a command from Ma. He said last week, as we were saying, Ma, she really does come. She appears. She manifests, and she does talk to you. And she will give you a command. So, it's like that that's that, that, that idea of authority. So, Sri Ramakrishna continues, if a person is going to give instruction, he needs an officer's uniform. If not, hearing those words, they will fall down laughing. Without having anything himself, he goes to other people. So, um, so again, the officer's uniform, you could say, you know, again, the, the uniform, the, the uniform of a sadhu, of a sannyasin, is the care of a cloth and the danda. It be, the uniform represents that authority. If you, see, uh, if you see a policeman on the road in, in his uniform and they hold the badge and everything, and, whoa, you're like, if you, see, if you see a police car and you see, oh, you're going to slow down. Now, you could meet a, police, a policeman on the street in plain clothes. He still has all the authority, but there's that that hit when you see when you see the uniform. You're like, Ooh. if you if you walk down the street and you see a Catholic nun, like, Ooh. or you see a Franciscan monk, you're like, Ooh. or a sannyasa, or a Hasidic Jew, or whatever. There's something to these marks, these the lingam, the sign. There's something to it. It reminds you of a whole slew of things, but. One way of looking at that sign is that the sign carries a certain authority. And of course, the, the, along consubstantial with that is it carries with it responsibility on the person who has the sign, who wears the officer's uniform. Because again, the officer's uniform, he can go to you know Hollywood Magic costume shop and go get a police uniform costume and put on a costume. That's a costume. That's not a uniform. If you don't have a command, if you don't have the principles, then it's a costume. It's not a uniform. The uniform, with it comes the idea of a command, comes this whole thing of authority. Someone in authority presented it and as a, a part of a, a, you know, because through, through that authority, that whatever the entity that has that authority deemed you were able to wear that uniform. And again, that idea of that, the idea of respect and reputation, and authority and responsibility, all these things are in that idea of the sign and the, and the uniform. So you need a command, you need a uniform. So without having anything himself, he goes to other people. 
In other words, he's the person in the costume, not in the uniform. Without a command, without any, you know, yes, yes. With those words, they all fall down laughing. And then, in bold, embolds the next sentence, Takur says, the blind are leading the blind down the path. Everyone laughs. Of course, we have that phrase in the Bible, the blind leading the blind. Gandhi is called in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed are kings. There's a common theme, common image of a blind person leading another blind person. So, but there's a whole spectrum, no pun intended, but there's a whole <laughs> spectrum of, you know, he's talking here about, um, you know, people who think they have a command and they really don't, and they put on a, 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 some sort of badge of authority, spiritual authority, whatever authority. Um, you know, in a certain sense, ignorant gurus. I mean, they may mean well. Elsewhere, Sri Ramakrishna gives a very beautiful example. Uh, beautiful example, but I shouldn't say beautiful. A, a kind of uh, vivid example. Yes. He uses um, an example of a, a small snake trying to swallow a frog. So the small snake is like these kind of not so good gurus and the frog is the disciple. And the, the small snake doesn't have the capacity to really digest this and to, to, to eat the frog. And so it's just, Takua again, these images. So the, the small snake has a frog stuck in its throat and it's, it's horrible for the snake and it's horrible for the frog. For both the guru that's not, that really probably shouldn't be a guru, and for the disciple who's taken such a guru, it's, it's, it's not going to end well, you know, because it does the, doesn't have the capacity to, you know, and he uses a cobra or a you know, boa constrictor. There's one gulp, ah, gone, you know. So there's that level of, you know, again, the gurus who may mean well, they're not malicious. But they're just not uh, ready for that type of, again, tremendous responsibility. But then you have the whole spectrum from that, you know, we're talking about you know, the blind, leading the blind, from that to really like, malevolent, like evil, sinister gurus. And they're there too. You know, in the Bible, the wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's another common theme. So that's the whole at the other end of the spectrum. So, we'll take a, a brief uh, detour, because there's one story, uh, often we think about certain scenes in the Tulsidas Ramayana. Last week we talked about a beautiful scene where uh, Tulsidas, actually where Hanuman uh, appeared to Tulsidas. And um, there's one story in the Balakand that uh, Sage Yajnavalkya tells Bharadwaja. And the story, I was thinking about this story when I was reading this phrase, the blind leading the blind, and this idea of like, you know, gurus, and, and thinking about this. And really, this story, it's not a very long story, but it really, all the points that Taka was bringing up are brought up in this story. So some of you may have heard this story or read this story. So, Yajnavalkya tells Varadwaja that, oh, this is the story that Shiva told Parvati on Mount Kailash. 
So there was this, uh, this, this kingdom. It was named Kaikaya. And it was celebrated throughout the world. And so there was a very wise and pious king named Satyaketu. So Satyaketu, he ruled. And he was you know, a great champion of virtue, you know, the storehouse of political wisdom, very dignified, and he was glorious, very friendly, and very powerful. And he had two very brave sons, the Satyaketu. And they were also very virtuous and very brave in battle. So the elder of these two sons, and he was the heir to the throne, the heir to the throne, um, he was named... Pratapa Bhanu. <coughs> so this Pratapa Bhanu, um, you'll figure in very strongly in Ram Lila. So Pratapa Bhanu, and he had a brother, Ari Mardana. So who and this Ari, his younger brother, was also unequaled in strength and very steady in battle. And the, the battle, and, the, and the, the two brothers were very affectionate, and they each bore, they were, they were free from blemish and guile, it says. And so to the elder son, the Pratapabhanu, the king, he resigned the throne, and he drew himself, he goes to the forest, he goes to Tapasya, to devotion to Sri Hari. So Pratapabhanu becomes king, and a proclamation is made throughout the land, and he took his subjects, with very much utmost care, and he upheld the Vedas, and, and there was no sin anywhere. So everything was going very well. And he had a very wise prime minister, Dharma Ruchi. And Dharma Ruchi, uh, Tulsi Das compares him to like a, another Shukra. So Shukra is the, the guru of the, the demons. He's, he's, he's a guru. I mean, among the demons, he, he's got demons for disciples. That's a very interesting, you know, again, this idea of gurus and disciples. But he's considered, he's not necessarily bad. Out, out of, for his responsibilities, he actually tries to uphold Dharma as much as he can. And, and he's actually considered very, very holy. So he was a second shukra. And he was devoted, and he was as devoted to the king as he was wise. So this very Dharmaruchi, very prudent counselor, and also very brave. And, and then the brother was very brave. The king himself was very daring in war. And he had a vast army, and chariots, and elephants, numberless warriors, all of whom fought furious, fearlessly. And the king rejoiced to see his army. And there was a tumultuous sound of kettle drums. Very glorious. And so he collected a special force. He conquered the world. And availing himself on an auspicious day, he followed, you know, the, the astrology. And he marched with the beat of drums, and battles were fought, and all the kings fell to him. They subject, they became his subjects. By the strength of his arm, he reduced the seven sections of the terrestrial spheres, and let the princes go on payment of tribute. So he's very, you know, benevolent. Now, now Pratap, Pratapabhanu, he was the undisputed sovereign of the entire world. And so the king, he goes to his capital, and he also, he indulges in like the, the four fruits of life, kama, artha, uh, uh, kama, dharma, dharma, kama, artha, you know, at the appropriate time. So secured by this king Pratapabhanu's might, 
the earth became of cow plenty. So he's acting according to Dharma. And so everything is going, everything's in harmony. Everything's going very well. The people were happy and free from sorrows. Men and women were good looking and virtuous. And the minister, Dhammaruchi, he was devoted to Sri Hari. So everything was going well. And he advised him very, very well. And the, and the, the gurus, the gods, the saints, the ancestors, the brahmins, he served them all, this king, Pratapabhanu. Whatever duties that are, a king is supposed to do, he did. He did. He bestowed gifts every day, according to the Vedas and the Puranas. So everything is going well. The sacrifices, he did all that. And there was no seeking any reward in his heart. The king was a man of great discrimination and wisdom. And every, whatever meritorious act he performed, thought, word, or deed, he dedicated to Lord Vasudev, Vishnu. So this is the scene. So here is his great glory, everything. He comes from a noble line, he's doing well, he's conquered the world through dharmic means, he's upholding, everything is in perfect harmony. And then he goes hunting. And we all know, any time in any Hindu scripture, when any king goes hunting, it doesn't end well. A king is allowed to go hunting. That's okay. He's allowed to. But there's a very interesting theme throughout that you may be allowed to go hunting, but whenever you do, there's going to be problems. <laughs> so, equipping himself in the outfit of hunting, the king mounted a gallant steed and entered a dense forest in the Vindhya range. This is an area near uh, Allahabad, Vindhyavasini, very beautiful area. So he goes out there, and what does he do? He killed many sacred animals. So, now, our, now and, and then the next thing. While ranging in the wood, he espied a wild boar. So, he sees this wild boy. It looked as if the moon in his mouth. With the moon in his mouth, the demon Rahu had hid in the forest. The orb was too large to be contained in the mouth, yet in his rage he would not disgorge it. So Chosidas uses this metaphor to describe the beauty of this boar's the tusks. It was like the moon was like sticking, the crescent moon was sticking out. Like Rahu had tried to devour the moon, but it was too big in here. And there's something very enticing about this wild boar. And um, he's growling at the horse and picking up its ears. It gazed with a startled look, this boar. So like, for a hunter, like, wow, this is wonderful. And it's interesting because the boar is very beautiful. But interesting, the boar is not Varaha, not Vishnu, not that boar. Um, somehow it reminds me there's um, there's a story there's uh, in, 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 in Catholicism there's a story I forget who it was it was some saint who was praying in church and then uh, Christ comes to him in this beautiful vision and he's dressed in purple and he informs this saint 
the time is coming, I'm coming now, this is my second coming, the world is going to end, so please bow down to me, please follow me now. And the saint, as he's like, you know, maybe that's how I pictured it when I heard it as a kid, but I, he's, you know, kneeling in the pew, and, be, and he says, but Lord, you said that when you would come again, you would be dressed all in white, <laughs> and you'd be surrounded by your angels. And then Jesus' face turns really <coughs> dark, and he gets very angry, and he turns into Satan. Mm. And he's like, ah, you know, Christmas, ah. You know, he, he thought he could get another one, and then he like he was like, just disappeared, and the, the the church was filled with the smell of sulfur as he disappeared. Oh. And obviously, the, the, it made a tremendous impact when I was a little kid when I heard that story. But that idea that, and of course, they used it. I think the. Priest was using an example that, you know, ah, it said that the devil knows all the scriptures. The devil knows all of, but he's always gonna, he's not, he gets things a little wrong. So you have to, you have to really know the scriptures better than Satan, you know, and test, you know, and make sure, because again, this idea of, you, you know, last week we were talking about how you don't look, you know, he tells, in my image, he tells Keshab, you know, you don't look into people's natures. And that's why these people like Vijay, they run away from you. The people, he uses like there's a um, pulis, which is a type of sweet. They all look alike, but some have coconut, shredded coconut inside, some have kalai paste, some have, you know, sesame paste. It's all different things. They may look alike, but everyone has different natures. Some have, people have more tamas in them, some people have more sattva, some people have more rajas in them. So all men as a group look alike, but their natures are different. So it's like, the same thing in these divine realms where it's like you have to be very careful you know as we know sita let ravana cross the line but he looked like a very holy hermit and here that we'll see you'll see it again so anyway it made me think of that that here's this you know he goes from leading a dharmic life this king and then he goes hunting and he's attracted by this boar and but this isn't, again, this isn't Varaha, Varaha. Just as Pratapa, uh, Pratapa Bhanu almost, through his dharmic life, hold, help, helps hold up the earth. He's helping Varaha help hold up the earth. The divine boar held up the earth. But now he's attracted to this boar. It's a very different boar. So, exhausted with much exertion and oppressed by hunger and thirst, the king and his horse kept searching for a stream. So the boar, no wait, I'm sorry, I got a little ahead. So the beast, uh, oh, on oh, seeing the boar, and it's a very interesting, on seeing the boar, which resembled a purple mountain peak, watch out if they dress in purple. So, resembled a purple mountain peak, the king whipped the horse and advanced rapidly, challenging the boar at the same time and saying it could no longer escape. So this pursuit happens. When it's all the the horse come in, great noise, the boar took to flight. And the king lost no time, fitting arrow to the boar, the crouched as soon as it saw the shaft. The king discharged his arrows, taking steady aim. But each time the boar saved itself by its wiliness. The beast rushed on, now hiding, now emerging into view, into the dense thicket, impenetrable by elephant or horse. And even the king was by him, even though he was all by himself. And he was faced in undue hardships in the forest. He still would not abandon the chase. He just kept going, kept going. So the boar then slinks into a deep mountain cave. 
and the king perceived there was no access. No access to the cave. And so he had to return much disappointed. Much disappointed. Ah, missed. I didn't get that beautiful boar. I didn't kill that beautiful boar. You know, and on top of that, now he's lost in the forest. <laughs> he just kept going and lost his way. Of course, a lot of symbolism there. Lost in the forest. Now, exhausted with much exertion and oppressed by hunger and thirst, the king and his horse kept searching for a stream or pond, and they're, they're almost ready to faint. So again, the, the king isn't searching, he isn't seeking God, he's hunting. That's the first thing. He's, you could say he's running after the desires. But he's not acting for Dharma, he's not serving, he's, not, he's acting, he's pursuing that, that desire, and that desire is leading him, leading him deeper, deeper into this very dense forest. And then also, again, he's thirsty. So kind of keeping in all of Thakur's analogies, you know, he's looking, he's looking for water now. So in a certain sense, keeping with that theme, he's, he's really, he's looking for God. He's looking for that essence. But now he, he's thirsting for it, you know, but he, he can't find it. You know, now, you know, it's like, um, again, God is the real desire. God is the only desire, but we keep getting lost as we pursue all these other things. You know, we need water to stay alive. We need water. We don't need a boar. We certainly don't need to kill a boar, but we need water. You know, but he's exhausted himself in this pursuit, and he's gotten lost. And that so often happens in spiritual life. And on top of that, he's got low blood sugar, you know. It's the whole thing. He's ready to faint, you know. He's not, in his, he's not thinking straight either. So he can't see properly. So, so while wandering in the forest, oh, he espies a hermitage. Ah, and in that hermitage, disguised as a hermit, was an old king, a monarch, one of the monarchs who had been conquered by King Pratapalanu. And he had run away. He had run away from the field of battle, deserting his army, and knowing that the time was propitious, Pratapabhanu, and most unfavorable to his own self, he felt much disgusted, and he returned to home. And he was too proud to come to terms with being a sub his subject. So, gathering up all his anger in his own heart, that other king, he lived in the forest like a pauper, but he disguised himself as a hermit, as an anchorite, as a sadhu. So, it just so happens, it's him, that King Pratapabhanu, stumbles upon as he's lost. So he goes to his hermitage. Now, King Pratapabhanu, he's really thirsty and overcome by thirst. Again, he's, he's really, he's so thirsty for the truth, for, for that real, real thing, that real spirituality. But he's, because he, he, because he lacks, because he's deprived of that, he doesn't have good judgment. And so he's, easily swayed. So overcome by thirst, he, he can't recognize who this other king is. Perceiving the holy garb, King Pratapabhanu took him as a great sage and getting down from the horse made obeisance. The king, however, he was still too astute to disclose. He didn't say who he was. 
He didn't say, I'm King Prataprabandhu. He, he knew enough to not do that. So, seeing the king thirsty, this hermit shows him great respect. He showed him to a good lake, and the king, as well as horse, gladly bathed in it and drank. So the whole fatigue was gone, and the king heaved a sigh of relief. The hermit thereafter took him back to his hermitage. And seeing it was now sunset, he tells him to take a seat, and tells King Pratapabhanu, Well, who are you? And why do you risk your life by roaming here in the forest all alone? Even though you're so young and handsome? First thing. See, again, looking at these false gurus. Again, we're talking about right now, we're talking about you know the blind leading the blind. We're talking about that very far spectrum of the real, the gurus who are like, out to like, you know, pull one over on you. So, first off, beware flattery. You know, oh, some, why are you a young, handsome, noble person like you? Why are you wandering alone? So, reading the marks of the emperor on your person, so you see, oh, I can tell you're a very noble, you're a monarch, you're an emperor of some sort. You know, I am moved with great pity. So, listen, O king, great sage. There is a king named Pratapabhanu. Of course, this is King Pratapabhanu talking. I am his minister. So he says. So he was in. He was hunting, and he had been. You know, uh, he had gotten lost. And so he is. Ah, oh, just how propitious that I'm here now at your hermitage. Your sight is a rare boon to me. So the hermit says, "It is now dusk, and your city is five hundred over five hundred miles away. So why don't you, you know, basically, why don't you rest here, spend some time at the hermitage? You know, it's too late now to go. So." He stays. You just stay here and stay in the and, and leave in the morning. So the king agrees. And then he basically the king com, King Pratapabanu completely just falls for it. And he completely thinks that this uh, this hermit is the real thing. And eventually he says uh, he, he eventually he states who he really is. He, he, he says that he is King Pratapabhanu. And of course, now, the, while the king is talking and slowly buying every word, this hermit is like, he's, get, he's hatching a very good plan. Ah, ah, and he's realizing. And so, he really, he, seeing that basically now I got him eating out of my hand, he starts telling this whole story. Like, um, my name is Bikari. Penniless and homeless as I am. This is what the hermit says. And uh, the king, so the king replies, Oh, but those who are repositories of wisdom and free from pride, like you, always keep their reality concealed, even though they're proficient in every way. And so he starts, you know, basically, again, the king puts up upon, he knows the scriptures, and he knows the signs. So he sees the signs, but, you know, again, there's that idea of the sign can be the badge of authority, or the sign can be a costume. But he's thinking of it, he's, he's falling for it. And so, then basically, uh, the, this hermit, he tells, oh, I, I lived very far, I, I live away from the world, away from the public gaze. And he basically says that my birth took place at the first dawn of creation. Oh, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, it starts doing this big elaborate tale. Since then, I've never taken another body. That is why I am called Ekatanu, 
So this ek tanu, meaning ek, he's only taking one. He's only he's only had one body. So that's another big warning sign. It's all this idea that this body <laughs> identification <laughs> emphasis, because then it's like, oh, how, how did how did you manage to do that? How do you? I don't think you know this. I you know there's nothing. Whereas, like, how I can teach you how to attain moksha, I can teach you how to have devotion to Sri Hari. I, I, did you know that I've only had one body since the dawn of creation? I mean, th- again, there's some warning flags that he's totally missing. So, but marvel not to hear this, for nothing is too difficult to obtain through penance, by dint of penance. So, so here, again, the devil knows the scriptures really well. By dint of penance, says, Ektanu. Brahma creates the universe. By dint of penance, Vishnu, tapasya, tapasya, tapasya. By dint of penance, Vishnu assumed the role of its protector. By dint of penance, again, Shambhu destroys the world. There's nothing in this world which cannot be attained through penance. The emphasis on penance, the emphasis on, it's like, it's like a machine. God becomes this machine. You know, you, you do all this work and you get your results. You do this and you get your results. You know, but that's, Religion is something else. But then the king falls for hook, line, and sinker. And so eventually, again, he reveals, my name is Parthabhanu, king. And, and, and he realizes, and he tells the hermit everything. So, but then, then, King Parthabhanu asks for a boon. He, he ex- basically accepts him as his guru. How oh, I want a boon. And what do you think he asks for? Let my body be free from old age, death, and suffering. Let no one vanquish me in battle and let me enjoy undisputed sovereignty over the globe for a hundred kalpas and let me have no enemies. You know, from embodying dharma and serving the, the dhamanas and devotion to Sri Hari and having no reward for himself to I want... A body that lasts forever and no death, no suffering. You know, it's like you can see, it. The whole thing is has shifted. The whole thing has shifted. He really is lost. That's why I love this story because everything that Thakur is talking about is in this story, and this is of course setting up the story for Tulsidas's for the Ramlila, and we'll see how this connects. So the hermit says, Oh, so be it, king. There's one difficulty, though. <laughs> Even death shall bow his head at your feet. The only exception are the Brahmins. O ruler of the earth. The Brahmins are ever powerful by virtue of their penance. No one can deliver from their wrath. If you can propitiate the Brahmins to your will, O king, even Brahma, Vishnu, and great Lord Shiva shall be at your command. Now talk about, <laughs> it's like from serving Vishnu to like even Vishnu will do your bidding. It's like, whoa, that's like, talk about. So, ah, might is of no avail against the Brahmins. With both arms raised to heaven, I tell you this truth. He even got like that kind of evangelical. I've raised both my hands. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. You, if you can't escape the Brahmin's curse, you shall never perish. You better listen carefully, King Pratapanu. 
Hearing these words, the king rejoiced and said, My Lord, I shall no longer die. <laughs> By your grace, O benevolent master, I shall be blessed at all times. Eva mastu, so be it, yes, says the false hermit. And added with crafty intent, says Tolsidas, if you tell anyone about my meeting with you and you're straying away, the fault shall not be mine. But I warn you, came because great harm shall befall you if you relate this incident to anyone. That's another clue. Don't, don't tell anyone. This is very secret. It's like, what are you hiding? I mean, there's something to be said for a guru's disciple relationship. There's some things that are private. Many things between a guru and a disciple, discussions, mantra, all, are private. But the idea of, oh, it's secret. Mm-hmm. There's something, again, there's something, there's a different <coughs> flavor to it. Oh, I don't tell you. And also, again, like, what, why not? Obviously, because if you tell someone, someone who knows better is going to fail. That's not a, who? <laughs> Ek- Ekatanu? Are you serious? You're like, again, don't tell anyone, because if someone, if you told your friends, your friend's like, He's had a body since the beginning of creation. Are you serious? Here, here's some water. Sit down. You know, so, so don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Okay, just don't tell anyone. See how it's all set up. So, oh, if you pratapanu, if you, and so he's like, don't think, and then he starts scaring him. If you divulge the secret, or if a Brahmin curses you, you are undone. In no other way shall you die. Even a Sri Hari and Hara get angry. So he, he, just see how he couples that. It's like, if you tell anyone, oh, if a Brahmin curse, you watch out, you're, you're undone. Ah, but if you do what I say. But so that's the thing, he always he couples, and they, these teachers, they will do that. They'll, if you do what I say, if you don't do what I say, oh, watch out, but if you do do what I say, ooh. Not even, even if Vishnu and Shiva get angry with you, ah, oh, there's nothing they can do. They always like, he puts the warning in, but mixes in a lot of, you know, incentive. So he goes, ah, and a guru can save one, even if one has evoked the wrath of Brahma, but in the event of a quarrel with one's guru, there is no one in the world who can save them. But interesting that the guru is saying this. Don't, don't, don't cross me, because you know it says in the scriptures, even then Shiva can't help you if, I, if I'm angry with you. It's like, it's just, so watch out, watch out for people like that. So, so then, King Pratapabhanu said, How shall I be able to win over the Brahmins? Kindly tell me that. I see, I see no, uh, I see no well wishes other than you. Oof. So, again, careful what you wish for. And notice again, it, it, he's moved from serving the Brahmins to winning them over on his side. You know, getting them to, to be on his side. It's a, it's a huge, huge shift. So, so, Ekatanu starts telling the whole thing, listen to various expedients in the world, but they're hard to accomplish and difficult. So, and he starts telling things, like, so, you know, I can't go into uh, other people's villages and on all that. I can't, you know, if I go into a village, because, you know, I'm a sadhu. If I enter a city or anything, oh, it's, it's forbidden for me. That's why I stay in this hermitage, away from the public. That's Because that, that's how holy I am. 
So if I do not go, then there'll be misfortune for you because you need your guru with you. Hmm, what to do? I'm therefore out of the dilemma today. So now, now what, what is he doing? Now he's pumping up King Pratapanu's ego. I'm like, can you help me, disciple? Help me try to figure out how to do this. So then the disciple thinks, I'm helping my guru. So hearing this, the king replied, Oh my lord, there is a maxim laid down in the Vedas. The great show of kindness, the great show kindness to the small mountains always bear tiny blades of grass on their tops. The fathomless ocean carries floating foam on its breast, and the earth ever bears dust on its bosom. Beautiful lines. Very wise. But look at the context in which he's bringing these up. So saying, the king clasps the hermit's feet and says, Be gracious to me, my man. You are a saint, compassionate to the humble. Therefore, make, take this trouble on my behalf. Help me. Help me get the Brahmins on my side so I can have Vishnu and Shiva and Brahma at my command. Whoa. Knowing that the king was now completely under his influence, the hermit, who was clever at deception, Listen, I will tell you the truth. <laughs> so there, for me, there's nothing in this world that's hard to obtain. I will surely accomplish your object. The power of yoga, planning, and penance, and mystic formula work only when secrecy is maintained about them. So, basically he says, O king, if I cook for you, if I cook food and you serve it, and if nobody comes to know me, Whoever tastes the food so prepared shall be amenable to your orders. So basically, let me cook food and you serve it out. Everyone will do what you say. Everyone who eats it. Whoever dines, I tell you, whoever dines at the house, house of such people shall, O king, be dominated by your will. Go and operate this scheme, O king, and take this vow for a whole year. Every day invite a new set of 100,000 Brahmins with their families. And so long as your vow lasts, I shall provide the banquet. Again, the Guru gives nourishment. The Guru gives the Diksha mantra. One meaning of the word Diksha is to digest. The Guru gives the seed, and the seed sprouts. And you, it sprouts within you. But just see... We'll, we'll see what food this guru is giving. In this way, O king, with very little exertion. That's another thing. Sadhana, spiritual life is very hard. Anyone who tells, use the old phrase, anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. But this, oh, very little exertion. That's all you got to do. Just let me cook. There you go. In this way, the little, all the Brahmins shall be propitiated to your will. The Brahmins in their turn will offer oblations, but look at how sinister this becomes. The Brahmins will in turn offer their oblations into the sacred fire, perform big sacrifices, and practice adoration. And through that channel, the gods too shall be easily won over. O king, I give you one more sign. I will never come in this form. By my delusive power, O king, I will carry your family priest, remember Dharma Ruchi, the very good minister. I will carry him, and I'll keep him here at my ashram for this year. And I will take his form, and I will manage everything for you. 
but the night is far gone, so you had better retire now, and then three days from now we'll meet. By my superpower, I will convey you to your home, both you and your horse, even while you are asleep. Wow. Now I will come in the form that I have told you, and you will recognize me when I call you aside and remind you of all this. So basically he's saying, I'm going to take the form of Dharma Ruchi, I'm going to become, take the form of your, of your advisor, your minister, and I will come, and we'll, we'll work this all out. So now I'm going through my magic powers, convey you back. So the king went to sleep in obedience, not because he was tired, or in obedience to the hermit, while the counterfeit sage returned to his own seat and sat down to do his tapasya. Deep sleep came upon the weary monarch, but the awkward the other one sleep, distracted as he was with that anxiety. And then Kalaketu comes. Kalaketu is the demon. He made his appearance there. And it was he, the demon Kalaketu, that had assumed the form of a boar and led the king astray. So a great friend of the hermit king, <laughs> a great friend of the hermit king, he was very skilled in deceit. He had a hundred sons and ten brothers who were great villains. So, and very annoying to the gods. And so the king, this king, Pratapabanu, he had killed all of them. So that, again, the vendetta of this Kalaketu, King Pratapabanu had killed all these demons. And so, the, um, so he had this vendetta. Also, it's very interesting that um, this Kalaketu, he had ten brothers. So one way of looking at it is like the Indriyas, all the outgoing senses, all the, you know, the, the organs of, of knowledge and of action, all of this. You, know, these are, you can kill all of them, but if the ego stays, then... So all the, you know, all the dharma and the sacrifice, and through that, through his dharmic life, he had managed to kill all of these tremendous demons. He had conquered the world, not through tapasya, 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 but by, not by trying to win over the Brahmins, but he had done it just by being a virtuous king. So, so the king, so the demon, so the demon starts talking to the hermit, So, the demon, he said, listen, O king, since you have followed my advice, and take the enemy as subdued. So basically, he, he's revealing that this hermit king had gotten his instructions to do this from Kalaketu. We're getting the kind of demonic sampradaya revealed. So this, this hermit king, he had, he's a follower of this demon, Kalaketu. You see how, you know, just cease to worry yourself and rest. God has effected a cure without the use of a medicine. I will sweep away the enemy root and branch and see you on the fourth day. So basically, it's the demon, Kalaketu, who assumes the form of Dramaruchi. He puts uh, uh, Pratapabanu there back in his bed, in his, there, his horse is in the stable. Pratapabanu wakes up, oh, wow, thinking that, oh, I thought that hermit has such powers. He conveyed me back in my palace. Wow. But then Pratapabanu immediately he takes his horse in secret and goes outside, way outside the gate, and comes back in as if he was just arriving. And people just saw him sleeping in his bed. So he comes back. 
I'm back from hunting. You know, he comes back, and then he sees Dharma Ruchi, but he knows that. You're not really Dharmaruchi, you're my guru, you're the hermit. But really, it's the demon, Palaketu, who has assumed the form of Dharmaruchi. So he car- he's carried him off to the, th- the Dharmaruchi, depriving him of his senses by his supernatural power, and kept him in a mountain cave. Oh, and the king is very happy to, in his mind, oh, he's so happy to see his guru. And again, this is his advisor. This imposter has come in the form of the family priest, the family advisor. You know, he comes in a very familiar form. You know, and now, but the thing is, at this point, it's not even the false hermit. This is like his guru. This is the demon. This is the source. This is that pure... Ugh. <laughs> yeah. So basically what happens is all the Brahmins are invited to the palace for the feast, and this demon in the guise of Dhammaruchi is cooking everything. And he invites, he makes a very sumptuous feast, and then he dressed the flesh of a variety of animals, and then he mixed in a little bit of the flesh of Brahmins into the, into the food. So he puts a little bit of Brahman flesh. So all the Brahmins are all sitting in their row ready to have the feast presented by King Pratapabhanu. And then at that moment, the demon, Kalaketu, makes this like fake voice of God. He's up, up, Brahmins, return to your homes, taste not this food, it is most harmful. The dishes include the flesh of Brahmins. All the Brahmins rose up believing that, oh my gosh, this is the God warning us. Of course, it's the demon. So again, here the Brahmins are even fooled by this fake, fictitious voice. You know? The king lost his nerve. His mind was totally bewildered. Like, what? What? He's like, you know. But as fate would have it, he was so dumbfounded, he couldn't utter a word. He couldn't say a thing. And so, in their wrath, Oh, foolish king, Pratapanu, go and take birth in the demon's form, you and all your family. Mm. So he got cursed by the Brahmins. Mm. That's the one thing his guru even gave, he gave him the little, the little warning signs. Everything's fine unless you get cursed by a Brahmin. <laughs> we got cursed by all the Brahmins. <laughs> so then... Oh, vile Kshatriya, within one year's time, you and all your family will be dead. And then you and all your family will take birth as demons. And hearing the curse, the king was like stricken with fear. But again, a voice was heard from heaven. This time it really is God. And oh, holy Brahmins, you have uttered this curse without careful thought. So even the Brahmins are learning something. You have, they were, you know, duped. Oh, Brahmins, you have uttered this curse without careful thought. The king has committed no crime. But the Brahmins were astounded when they heard this other ethereal voice. So they hastened to the kitchen. There was neither no food, nor cook. Kalaketu had just disappeared. And they realized what they had done. But they, they, they themselves, the Brahmins says, what can we do? A Brahmin's curse is a Brahmin's curse. <laughs> you know, it's very terrible. No amount of effort can counteract it. Mm. So the Brahmins dispersed. Then so eventually, 
No one in Satya Ketu's family, you know, remember his father, King Pratapabhanu's father, the holy, holy lineage, no one survives. And of course, the hermit sees his chance. The king is like, oh my gosh, in the midst of all this, everyone's dying around, everything is falling apart. So the hermit king puts back on his battle regalia, tells all the other conquered kings, now's our chance, go, and within no time, they take back the capital, they take over the whole empire, which is the world, they take it all back. So, so says Yajnavalkya to Bharadvaj, in due time, this king, with his family, was born as a demon, so King Pratapa Manu became a demon with ten heads and twenty arms. His name was Ravana. He was a formidable hero, and the king's other member, the king Pratapa, had a younger brother, Arimardana. He became the powerful Kumbhakarna. And his minister, remember, Dharma Ruchi, he was kind of like, hey, he was the innocent one and all that. He became Ravana's younger half-brother, Vibhishana. So he became Vibhishana and is known to the whole world as devotee of God, Vishnu, and a repository of wisdom. He was the innocent one in all this. So even though they were born in the uncomfortably pure and holy line of the sage Pulestya, because Ravana, they all come from that line, on the account of the Brahman's curse, they were all embodiments of sin. So they go, we're ending this little diversion, the story here, We'll get back. So the three brothers, they all go to practice austerities. Ravana, Vibhishana, and Kumbhakarna. They go and practice austerities. And again, tapasya. And seeing their penance, Brahma comes and asks a boon. Ten-headed Ravana, he clasps his feet. Oh, listen, O Lord of the rumors, my prayer is that I should die at the hands of none else, save monkeys or men. So be it. You have done great penance. Again, Penance was like echoing in his ears as he was born, probably. So, this was the boon Brahma. And so Shiva tells, Shiva tells Parvati, this was the boon Brahma and I granted him. Then, the creator approach, Brahma approaches Kumbhakarna. And then has, he approaches Kumbhakarna, he sees that Kumbhakarna is huge. And he knows what he's going to ask. So he like kind of deludes his mind. And so, uh, instead of asking, I want to eat all the time, because you know, Brahma knows if he did, creation would be just eaten up. So he kind of like, that's not the boon you're looking for, you know. <laughs> so uh, basically, I want to sleep six months out of the year. So, oh, so be it. So you'll sleep six months a year. So that was that. Then last of all, Brahma went up to Vibhishana and said, ask a boon, my son. And Vibhishana asks for pure love for the lotus feet of the Lord. Which is almost, the, that's Thakur's prayer. And every time Thakur starts praying to Ma, do not let me be, de- be bewildered by thy world of witching Maya, but just give me devotion to your lotus feet. Pure prayer, pure boon. Not, how do I like, win the Brahmins over? <laughs> so anyway, that kind of, that story kind of, um, tells all the things that he's uh, uh, that Thakur has been saying about um, gurus and about the false. So again, that's, a, that's the extreme of the blind leading the blind, the very evil intent, intentionally. There's unintentional gurus who just aren't good gurus. But in either case, 
That's not really a good ending. So the blind are leading the blind down the path, Sri Ramakrishna says, and trying to help, the opposite happens. If you attain Bhagavan and have inner vision, then you can understand who has which disease. Instruction can be given. Elsewhere, Sri Ramakrishna uses an example. Gurus, they're like doctors. So there's a good doctor, there's a mediocre doctor, and there's a bad doctor. So the bad doctor, he gives the patient the medicine and just, here's the medicine. The mediocre doctor gives the patient the medicine and says, you're going to take it? Come on, you know what's good for you. I've given it to you. I know what I'm doing. I prescribe. Please take the medicine. Will you please take the medicine? That's the mediocre. But the, the best guru, the best doctor, he gives the medicine. And if you don't take it, he throws you to the floor, puts his knee on your chest, shoves it down your throat, opens up your mouth and shoves the medicine down your throat, whether you like it or not. That's the best guru. That's the best doctor. So when you attain Bhagavan and have that inner vision, you can understand who has which disease. Then you can understand which medicine to give. If not, you're just like, it's tapasya. You know, it's all about tapasya. You know, or you don't know. It's like, and you can start quoting scriptures like, like that hermit king, but you, know, you need to attain Bhagavan. So that's that section. The next section, very short, but again, there's just a few lines. It's four lines in Bengali, but M has a new section title. And the section title he gives is a verse, half a verse from the Gita. Ahamkara vimutatma karta aham iti manyate. Clouded by egotism, one thinks that he is the doer. That's from chapter 3. That's a very interesting... Whenever, again, he doesn't... M, remember we talked about last week, this whole chapter has a Gita verse for its kind of epigram. It's from the um, 11th chapter. But here, this is just a little subsection, and he doesn't even cite you know, where it's from. He doesn't say Gita you know, 327, but it... It's Gita, chapter 3, verse 27. But whenever M puts on a, um, whenever M uh, uh, puts an epigram or quotes something, I always think the context of it. And so if you look at it, in chapter 3 of the Gita, verse 22, this is the, um, the yoga of action, actually. And Bhagavan Bhagavan says, Krishna says, There is nothing in the three worlds, O Arjuna, that should be done by me, nor is there anything unattained that should be attained, yet I engage myself in action. For should I not ever engage myself in action, unwearied men in every way would follow my path, O Arjuna. These worlds would perish if I did not perform action. I should be the author of confusion, of castes, and destruction of these beings. As the ignorant men act, from attachment to action, O Bharat, so should the wise act without attachment, wishing the welfare of the world. Let no wise man unsettle the mind of the ignorant who are attached to action. He should engage them in all actions, himself fulfilling them with devotion. And then this is the verse. All actions are wrought in all cases by the qualities of nature only, by the gunas. He whose mind is deluded by egotism thinks, I am the doer. So it's the gunas. 
It's all the gunas. Everything is the gunas working within the gunas. It's like we, every night we chant ma gunashrei gunamaye. You are you are the gunas and you rest on the gunas. They're made of you. The gunas are made of you and you are their support. They come from you. In this same boat ride, Krishna uses the example from the Upanishads of the spider. That out of the spider's own being, it makes the web and then lives in the web. So it's the same. So this whole universe is only Ma. It comes from Ma, it is Ma, and now Ma is resting in the universe. So it's all, it's all her. So Krishna says, without a command, again, that whole thing of authority, without a command, I am teaching people. This ego comes. Ego comes from ignorance. Sri Ramakrishna says, in ignorance there is the feeling, I am the doer. And we've been watching a little bit of, again, we'll watch again tomorrow, Devo Kendev Mahadev, and Daksha, you know, very, oh, I am Daksh, Pajapati Daksh, Paramabhutra. So he thinks, but the thing is, the whole, his whole problem is that, again, I am teaching people. I am Daksha. I am giving, you know, I am giving civilization. I am creating civilization. It's been my responsibility. So I am teaching people how to live in the world and how to live in society. I am creating society. He thinks he's serving, but it's all this ego. And that doesn't end well for him. So ego comes from ignorance. In ignorance, there is the feeling, I am the doer. God is the doer. God alone is doing everything. I'm doing nothing. If this understanding comes, then one is able, then one is a liberated soul. I am the doer. I am the doer. All suffering and unrest come only from this feeling. That's quite something for Thakur to say. All suffering and unrest only comes from this feeling that I am the doer. I am the doer. So we think, you know, tying it back into that story of King Pratapabhanu, and then Dharma Ruchi is born as Vibhishana, and he does his tapasya, and what does he ask for? I just want devotion to your feet. I just want devotion to your feet. So, Ramakrishna says elsewhere, you know, if the ego is to remain, he uses the word. It's translated as rascal, but he basically says, if the shala has to stay, let it be a devotee. If the ego, if the rascal ego is going to have to stay, then let him be a devotee. You know, it's very hard to get rid of the ego, and it's very hard. So if, there, if you are going to have an ego, let the ego be a devotee. And I think that there's Vibhishana's boon, his prayer and his boon. In the end of the Chandi, or the tenth chapter, I should say, just before Shumba is killed, it's one of my, it's quite a scene. Just before Shumba is killed, we have Ma there with all of the matrikas and uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, Shumba is is. All of his demons have fled, and he's all by himself now. And so, in his weird hypocritical, well, this isn't fair. 
There's only me, and you have all these matrikas and all, you know, and I'm just alone by myself. Like, he's the one who caused this whole thing by trying to, like, drag her by her hair. You know, it's like, you know, but it's very interesting. And so, what does she say? She says in chapter 10, Ekaivaham jagatyatra dvitya kamamapara. Who else in this universe is there beside me? And that half a verse is considered, as Guruji has said, one of the Mahavakyas of the Chandi. So he, here, and, but that scene of, here's Sham, um, Shumba, who's like the last bit of ego. And he's, he was struggling to retain that identity. And here's Ma just telling him, who else is there besides me? Meaning also, you. You know, and this is moments before the spear will plunge into him and that will be it. That'll be it. It's the, to me, it's like the, one of the last things the ego hears is mother's voice. Who else is there in this universe besides me? The one Bengali song that Ushama likes to sing, Chokulito maricha vichemoe tara tumi Tomar kormo tumi koruma Loke bole koriyami That sign, that thing, Tomar Kormo, tumi koruma. You are doing, basically, you are doing what you are doing. You are doing your action, ma. Loke bole koriami. People only say, I am doing, but you are doing. Because who else in this universe is there besides you? So we went a little longer tonight. Than I thought. <laughs> it was but, good. But anyway, so thank you for your kind attention. Jai ma, jai ma. <laughs>